0: bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting community here button on this page, and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hey there, Jeanne-Marie Penel, your host of The Art of Parenting. I just wanted to give you a little heads up that this interview was actually recorded four months before its release. It was recorded in February of 2020. We are now June 2020. And as some of you might know, there's a lot of changes and things that have happened between then and now, yet this conversation I think is still very pertinent in understanding the different uh, ways of educating depending on the culture that the edu- education is being done. So please enjoy this next conversation. Take care. Hello, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have Tarou Clavel with us. Tarou is a comparative education expert and author of a book called World Class, One Mother's Journey, Halfway Around the Globe, in search of the best education for her children. And I'm just fascinated with all of this and I have so many questions for you, uh, Tarou. So thank you for being here and making the time to have this conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jean-Marie.
0: So I always like to start with just asking the question of what, how do you define the art of parenting?
1: It's such a good question, and it's probably something I still grapple with. Um, so I wrote this book, World Class, and it followed my journey, adventures of having raised my kids in the local public schools of Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, then California. And at the time we started, my, my two older children were in diapers, and my third wasn't even born yet. And now I have uh, a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, and, uh, a a 10 year old. And I don't, I think it changes. I think it really is an art form. It changes every day. And I think it's very individualistic. Um, I think it requires lots of critical assessment, knowing what tools are available to you and what kind of supports you have. A lot of it, and this is sometimes painful, um, is knowing what your strengths are and what your limitations are and knowing when to ask for help and nothing makes you feel more real, um, the art of parenting really, because you have so much on the line, it feels like. And I think today too, when you have so much information out there, um, some accurate, some not, um, and I feel like there are a lot more social pressures out there because of, of our access to social media and the internet. I think there's a lot of, a lot of, um, their challenges there. And I think part of the art of parenting is figuring out what matters and what doesn't
0: to you yeah so so important and and like you say it is you know ever evolving so every every stage brings in a a new art form that we have to create so
1: yeah i mean some a joke that i think i mean you know at some point in in this child rearing i don't know my oldest i don't know how old he was but someone said something about they're being a parent and I think their, their older child was 25 or something years old. And that it was the first time it dawned on me that the, that the parenting journey doesn't end when your kids are 18, you know, cause no. I was like, what? <laughs> when you have your kids in diapers, you're kind of thinking, okay, when they're 18, when they're, no, it just, it never no, ends. It, it
0: never evolves. I have a 23 year old and a 19 year old. It's a whole new, it's a whole new chapter. Like it's just, you know, interacting with these young adults who are doing their their life it's just but you're still their parent mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah yeah beautiful so I, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and, and how you came to do the work that you do and especially uh write this book
1: yeah sure so i grew up um i was the only child of a single Uh, first generation immigrant from Japan. So in my home, and I grew up in the Connecticut, New York area, in my home, I spoke Japanese and my home was for the most part more culturally Japanese, but I went to school and everybody spoke English. And so I kind of, and I went to school where there weren't a lot of kids who spoke other languages, frankly, if any. And so I felt kind of different growing up. Now I feel like it's much more um, ever present and common, but that, that, that that kind of led to my curiosity in terms of international education. And my family lived in Japan, my extended family. So I would spend all my summers there and a lot of my other vacations. And I actually went to school in Japan during the summer. So, you know, fast forward, and I end up having kids, and the opportunity arises for us to move to Asia. I thought, this is fantastic because now I can share some of my heritage with my children. And um, so we ended up going to Hong Kong, and I put my two kids and later three kids into the local public schools. And that was from 2006 until 2010. And then we moved to Shanghai and again, local public schools. We were there for two years. And during that time, I went back and started my master's in comparative and international education. So while I was in Shanghai, I started my master's in comparative and international education because of my own personal background knowing the U S and Japanese systems. And then I had my kids in the Hong Kong and the Shanghai systems. And then in 2012, we moved to Tokyo and we were there for four years. And again, I put my three kids in the local public schools and I finished up my master's and I became an education journalist, primarily focusing on international education. So, um, I was fascinated by international student flows and, uh, Learning English and, and, and other languages and cultures. And I loved it. Um, and then we came back to the US in 2016 and we're in California. And I always had this idea that I wanted to write this book, but it didn't really materialize until I understood the US parent educational journey because I'd been socialized to parent in Asia, in East Asia. Right. And um, I thought, wow, okay, now I have a book I want to write. So. I came up with a book proposal and I pitched it to publishers, and that's how uh, world class my book came to be. And it, and it chronicles that journey from 2006 to 18. And it's part memoir and uh, part research. There's a lot of research in there as well. Beautiful, beautiful. And and I would love to know. You know, my
0: my questions is really what you have found to be kind of the, the major differences when we talk about um, education in the U.S. And in, and in Asia. And and I love that the, this is all public education, correct? Even here in the U.S.?
1: Yes, it is all yeah. public education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what have been, you know, and, and I, I know you don't want to get into too much of the details, but maybe two or three of the kind of the major, major differences that you see and maybe speak to the the listener who is maybe in the u s and and how we can maybe push our schools to improve in certain aspects,
1: sure. So I would off the top of my head, I would say, uh, there are three things. And when I talk about, The difference is I kind of put them into macro issues and micro issues. And the macro issues I talk about being maybe those changes that have to be made on a more systemic level that could take 5, 10 years or an entire generation. And the micro is the stuff that you can implement right now, um, today. So I'll start with the macro. And the first thing I would say is the equitable funding model. Right Because so equitable doesn't necessarily mean we're spending ten dollars per pupil uh, for every student in the United States on their education. It means you know give everybody the the quality, the access to quality education, regardless of their socioeconomic background or whether or not they're English language learners, so that everybody has an opportunity, right to to be able to be self-sufficient, be happy, be employed um and so typically in the US we have a 45 45 10 model and that's on average and that means 45% of your school funding comes from your local district taxes and then 45 from the state and only 10% from the federal government and in other places like for example in Japan it's so equitably funded that it doesn't really matter what your property taxes are because the best school that you can send your kids to is the school that's closest to your home Mm. And, you know, you think about the United States and you could be in an area where you could drive, you know, five hours in a- any direction and you still wouldn't hit a high functioning, thriving school um, with high, you know, social, emotional, academic, extracurricular type outcomes. So the, the equitable funding portion is something that I, I wish I could change in this country. Um, another thing is is teacher recruitment retention and professional development and again in China and in Japan it's prioritized not only in terms of budgeting and making sure that there's investment in that recruitment retention and development um, but we have career they, they I should say have career paths for their teachers so it becomes a career if you're coming out of undergraduate you know and you can make XYZ teaching versus XYZ in engineering and you see that career path, You know, our teachers shouldn't be made to be martyrs, which they kind of are in our country because a lot of them have to work two or sometimes even three jobs to make ends meet. And, you know, when it comes to the professional development, we in in the United States require our teachers to spend so much more time actually teaching in the classroom versus collaborating with other teachers for that horizontal and vertical alignment, meaning working, if you're a fifth grade teacher, meeting with other fifth grade teachers and vertical alignment, meaning knowing what's coming up um in the pipeline from from kindergarten through fourth grade, and then knowing what they're preparing their kids for sixth grade through senior year of high school, which is when u s compulsory education ends. And so there's not a lot of you know professional development for our teachers too. So we should be getting the best and the brightest into our education uh, profession, and we don't do that here. So I would say those two are macro issues that that i that I would um, like to, I guess bring to your listeners' attention. And on the micro level, I would say, and this is for classrooms and at home, is I found that when we got back to the United States, the level of expectation was so much lower. I found that there were so many more excuses why our kids can't do something. Or, I mean, I I went to, during the 17 and 18 academic year, I traveled across the country and visited thriving schools, um, those those schools that are struggling, urban, rural uh, suburban magnet, you name it. And that was pre-K through senior year of high school. And I, you know, I met with some, some principals of blue ribbon schools, which are ones that are, um, awarded as, as top achieving from the department of education. And some of these principals would say, Oh, you know, every, every study shows that our kids just can't really master high level mathematics in third grade. Or, you know, we really shouldn't be using high lexile um, uh, number of vocabulary words with our younger children. Or, and, and I was just amazed by that because when my kids were in school in, in, in both China and in Tokyo, you know, they were doing algebra in first and second grades. And there wasn't a question. And the teachers would stay after school in China, for example, in Shanghai, I should say, for as long as it took until my kids mastered that material. And in Japan, there was so much more community involvement in terms of getting every child to master the content. And so it made me, I felt crestfallen when I would visit some of these inner city schools, for example, and I was supposed to be, you know, basically doing an ethnographic study for, for research purposes in first grade classrooms. And some kids didn't even know how to use scissors or use a glue stick.
0: Yeah, and it, it's 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 sad, but it's it's true. <clears throat> excuse me, in this country that um, there's definitely huge, huge gaps. I mean, I, you know, my my education as a, a child was was all over the place, and I ended up graduating from um, in inner city high school in Washington D.C. Mm. And I remember, I mean, this is this is you know a true memory of being a senior and having, uh, my, you know, student fellow students who had difficulties reading. Yeah. And these were, these were kids that were about to graduate and this is how we're sending them out into the workforce. And I just, I remember being shocked that, you know, how can this be?
1: Yeah. And I, and I fear now what's happening is because there's been so much more momentum and push to send, all of our students are our high school graduates onto college and there's more and more research that shows that our kids are maybe going to college, but they're not college ready. And now colleges have to have so many more remedial courses and a lot of these kids are encumbered with college debt and they're not graduating even within six years after matriculating. And so, you know what are we doing? It's kind of this social promotion whereby, you know, a lot of teachers, and, and again, I, I can name a school that I worked with and I saw, um, I saw the grades of the kids in some of these courses and they're literally failing and they're still graduating from high school. You know, so that's, that's we're not doing anybody a favor, let alone the child or, or greater society by doing that.
0: No, no, it's a disservice to our children and to society at large, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that that I want to go back to, you were talking about um, your children doing algebra at a very young age. Um, So I'm coming, I I don't know if you know, but I come from a Montessori background where we do have very kind of, uh, you know, children are understanding concepts very young, but it's mm-hmm. all done with manipulatives. It's all sure. done with through you know through the senses and, and all of that. So it's not uh, you know it's not worksheets or memorizations and all of that. How is it? How is that different from what you were describing for your own children? So I
1: love that because when people think about or what I've what I've learned from from speaking with a lot of parent groups and teachers uh, through World Class. Is there's kind of this association that people have here, especially in the US, that East Asian countries, um, South Korea, China, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, that their mathematics is all about worksheets and rote memorization and just repeat, repeat, repeat. And while I say absolutely there is a part of it that is like that, a lot of it still is using manipulatives. I mean, I love, I have this scene and in, 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 that I keep remembering about my middle child who was in a preschool in Shanghai, and it was all about manipulatives. There mm-hmm. wasn't anything considered traditionally academic anywhere in his classroom. Um, and it was beautiful because he was just using all these manipulatives, puzzles, um, you know, it was just, I don't even know how to explain exactly what he was doing, um, but it was, He was getting so excited and motivated and charged to go to school from it. And I would say also in Japan, it's very, very play-based in the preschools. Um, Literally nothing, literally nothing academic happening whatsoever. And they don't expect you to know anything when you start first grade. And both in China and in um, Japan, compulsory education starts in first grade. And meanwhile, these two languages are some of the most difficult in the world, right? Because you can't even read a paper and be considered literate unless you've learned all your thousands of characters through the end of middle school, which is ninth grade. And in a country like Japan, you have a near 100% literacy rate, right? So if you think about that, you know, what's going on at the preschool level in a country like Japan where you don't have that, you know, kind of what people associate with academics where kids are sitting at at desks and and copying and doing all that. Meanwhile, they get a 100% literacy rate. Beautiful. Yeah,
0: because they're they're exposed to different ways of communicating and the language itself and the beauty of it and, and just, you know, all the all the manipulatives like you say. So that <clears throat> I just wanted to get a clarification around that because I think that, you know, probably most of the listeners are, are US based and mm-hmm. when we talk about algebra, it's too, we're we're talking about, you know, middle school or high school and, and um it would be hard to to comprehend that but it's more in a kind of how how would you say in in preparing their intellect to understand all of that
1: yeah and i'd also say the way math is taught oh here so here's another story i went to my son's desk he was in first first or second grade when we we're in shanghai and i mean you know talk about the myth of the of the child with the pieces of paper all over his desk and disorganized i was looking i was like okay we have to clean this up, you know? So I go through it and I pull out this um, kind of a workbook and I'm not sure what it is. And the paper was so thin, it was basically made made out of kind of newspaper um, material. And so I go, you know, what is this? Do you need this? What is it? And he looked at me, he goes, mama, that's my math book, you know? And I only say that because there were so few numbers in it because it was all word problems and application. Mm. And That was so beautiful to me because then I reflected back on when I was in third, fourth, fifth grade and I went back to Japan or I went to Japan in the summer and I went to school there. And I have to say, the easy stuff was a simple, you know, two two digit multiplication. But for me, having been educated in the U.S., the word problems were very, very challenging for me because the application. So I kind of, I hearkened back to my own upbringing and I was so thankful that that there was my son and he's learning from, you know, the beginning of first grade how to actually apply math to real world concepts. Beautiful.
0: Yeah, very important. And so when you say, you know, you've been in different countries, different languages, I'm assuming that you speak Japanese at home?
1: So, right, growing up, I spoke Japanese at home. Now, I actually speak English to my children uh, now that we're back in the U.S. It's their strongest language. I have two teenagers, and I think it's more important to be able to communicate um, everything. Uh, But while we were, yeah, yeah, and while we were in Asia, I spoke English because I was the one who taught them English. Okay. Yeah, so so that's So, you did
0: not not raise them bilingual to, to learn two languages?
1: Oh, no, no. So they went to the local public schools where we lived. Okay. So they're totally trilingual. So they, they went to school in, in Mandarin for six years, and then they went to school in Japanese for four years. So that's why I taught them. I had to speak English at home and teach them reading and writing English at home. Otherwise, um, they wouldn't, they would actually be learning it as non-natives probably when we came back to the U.S. Right. And how, how, how
0: are you able to kind of maintain that for them now? Because that must be challenging being in the States and making sure they don't lose that, that gift that you gave them of learning those other languages?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So with my older two, um, they're able, my oldest is able to take uh, Mandarin at school. My second, for whatever reason uh, doesn't, doesn't have that high level Mandarin. So he's had to take two more languages. Um, so he's taking Latin and, and French. So he's on languages four and five and he's got too many other activities so in my mind it's just you know if you get to a high school that offers those great take them if not then the way i believe you can really master any language is to attend university courses in that language so hopefully when they are in college they'll take that opportunity to become international students in in japan and or china and my youngest she's still a trooper she still has Mandarin um, and Japanese lessons outside of school and attends the Japanese Saturday school, which is meant for Japanese expatriates in the United States. So she's, she retains a Japanese level at the same rate as uh, her, her classmates would in Japan. Wow. that's, that's what, what a gift. Because to me, I mean, I know
0: I really encourage families to speak their native tongues and to really, you know, expose our children to as many languages as possible. So that's, that's amazing. It's Wonderful. great.
1: And it's great. Yeah. And I, and I think also people, I think kind of conflate language as, as learning second or third languages with, Oh, it's a cool skill. You can communicate, but there's so much more to it in terms of the neurocognitive aspects and the cultural in terms of the empathy and understanding how other people think and operate and you know when people say there's so many things you can't translate from one language to another, those nuances are just I think are so wonderful for you know developing empathy, right, and understanding right. another person's experience.
0: Right. I know for for me, I was raised with uh, French and English, and mm. my my true language is when I speak with my with my siblings. Uh, where we mix up both languages because, like you yes. say, there's a word that's going to, you know, uh, explain something or an emotion much better in one language than the other. So I'm able to go back and forth. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there's one thing that I know you you worked on uh, when you were doing your master's of science. This idea of the Japanese parenting, the the Japanese approach to educating their children, can you speak a little bit to that, like if what are the major differences that you see in Japanese families as u um, s families?
1: Sure. Um so there's several things that come up. One of the first things it's it's both in the classroom and in the family where Kids have so much independence early on. So, starting at six years old, kids are expected to go around on their own to school, whether that be with a bus, train, walking. It could be a one-hour commute one way, um, and and so they go to after-school activities like that. And so, what they end up doing is, you know, they can starting at first grade do the do the grocery shopping. They just walk into town, you know, get the groceries, come back. So that translates into being able to contribute to the household doing chores, what we would commonly call chores here. Um, there it's just called housework, but they can, um, you know, do laundry, do the dishes, uh, sweep, vacuum, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of this whole, that plays into the larger, why can kids be on their own? And, and I would say, Part of the wonderful part, I think, of the Japanese uh, culture is the this, this sense of community and that you're doing something for a, a greater good. So it starts in the classrooms when, you know, there are no janitors or cafeteria staff workers in the schools because the kids serve each other, they clean the toilets and the blackboards and they have their own washcloths and and to clean. And... Um, basically that translates into you are a part of something bigger. So, you know, when these kids, these six-year-olds are out on the streets, everybody in the community is looking out for them to the point where the kids, the first graders have these yellow, these really bright yellow flaps on their backpacks and wear yellow hats. And, and, you know, in, in much of the world, right, or at least in the U.S., I can say, you would never put your first grader under a specific color outfit. Yeah, I mean, here, I think people would think that they're a target, you know, they're the most vulnerable, a six year old. And and whereas there, it's the exact opposite. It's we're all looking out for that, for that first grader.
0: And, and it's so sad, because when you're describing that, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm feeling my listeners going, Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. But at the same time, for me, it's, you know, this whole, um, free-range parenting movement that, I, that I'm sure you've heard about of, of letting our children do things on their own where, uh, you know, people are getting arrested for exactly letting their six-year-old walk to school on their own. So uh, it really is kind of, like you say, it's the, really the mentality of that community that we, we are watching out for each other's children, which, which is so beautiful.
1: And that's yeah. another thing, you know, even the the Atlantic had a cover story on the nuclear family and where is the nuclear family in the United States today? You know, and when you think about where is our community who's supporting us, we're getting to be so much more, you know, kind of overly independent and not relying on our community resources. And like you just said, you know, we're more likely to call the police officers uh, when your neighbor leaves the child alone, as opposed to just go and offer them, you know, hey, come over and have dinner,
0: right? Right, right. Yeah. And that's, and that's sad. (laughs) Yeah. What, what, or is there, is there something else that you wanted to share about that, that difference um, in the approach that a Japanese family might have?
1: Yeah. And so another big difference is also the parent involvement. And when I say that, you know, it's mostly the mom. So when we talk about gender parity, women in Japan have, you know, it's the biggest gender gap. It's one of the biggest in, in, in the, in the whole world. And women are expected to, for the most part, stay home. And if you have a child in a public elementary school in Japan, that parent, for every child that you have uh, in elementary school, is expected to to volunteer for a full year. And that oh, can wow. literally be as much as a full-time job. It can be anywhere from 10 hours a week to 40 hours a week. And wow. so when you when you think about that, you know, and there's so much parent parent involvement, parent education, and there's... You know, from a very Western perspective, it's like, what? You can never demand that of a parent. But from, from the outside, you can also say, wow, well, look at how high the learning outcomes are of these kids and how socially adjusted they are and they're independent. Well, you know, they have a full-time mom for the most part taking care of all of it from home.
0: Right. Um,
1: and it's still as much as a multigenerational family may be, you know, decreasing in terms of numbers in Japan. It still exists, right? So, a great example is every, it's on a trimester system in Japan. And every trimester, there's a parent uh, slash family visiting day. And there are two days actually it's on a Friday and then the Saturday the next day. In Japan, kids go to school every other Saturday. And they do it because the dads typically work on, on Fridays and then so they can come on Saturdays. And parents and grandparents, you know, they'll come both days and grandparents will come from afar just to see their grandchild um, in the school. So Mm -hmm. there's so many hands on that child's um, education. And you know, the other thing I'll say is, and this is, this to me was a, was a learning experience, because there I am for, with my third child, and I'm going to this parent education, and it, it, you're required, actually, if you don't come to the parent education, depending on the school, but this is more common than not in Japan, if you don't show up, you have to write a letter to opt out of oh, wow. of. The parent education. Yeah. And there I am listening to the teacher who's probably under 30 years old. And I'm thinking, yeah, I have a master's in comparative international education. I'm a journalist. She's my third child. What am I going to learn from someone so young? And without a, without any exception, every single time I went to one of these things, within five minutes, I had my notebook out and I was taking profuse notes. Wow! Because I had so much to learn from okay, this is what's happening in the classroom. This is how I can support it at home. I mean, even at the preschool level, right? If they're learning how to sort their things, the different bags they use, um, how to put on their shoes, how to take care of other students in the classroom, um, waiting in line or free play, organizing uh, their schedules by themselves. Okay, so how do we support that at home? You know, what kind of conversations are we having with them? And it was beautiful. I loved the home school collaboration and communication
0: that's beautiful because it, it sounds like it really is creating that village that I think a lot of us miss and and I feel here we tend to send our children off to school and are are disconnected with what's going on so very much so
1: I, I get you know. that sounds yes
0: yeah. Beautiful. Well, this has been delightful. I, I really appreciate you sharing all of this information that you discovered being a mother, you know, traveling the world with your children, but just with all your research, it's, it's fascinating. Um, well, thank, thank, you thank you so you much. Yeah. yeah. And, and I do want to, I tend to, I, I always like to wrap up with a more personal question, if I may. Absolutely. Is, uh, you did mention that your eldest was 15. Yes. So if you were to go back 16 years ago when you were expecting your first child, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today?
1: I have to tell myself this every day, so I'll just <laughs> say it It's probably just be kind to yourself because mm. I mean, and you know, I I used to have, you know, growing up and and then being in your 20s, and then you have all these ideas and judgments and hopes and dreams, and I'm not going to do it like that. Or why are they doing it this way? I'm not going to do it the way my parents did it. And and the reality is, life gets so complicated. Just be kind to yourself because for the most part, you, you do your best to control what you can, but life can blindside you in so many ways that are so unexpected. Um, so just be kind to yourself. And I would say, do your best and, and assess every day and, and, and don't, don't be so hard on yourself. I tell myself this all the time. So I'm just telling your listeners too. No, um, it's
0: beautiful. It's beautiful. And it, it, it is. It's words that we should be repeating to ourselves all the time. So oh, yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Any, any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: I guess right now, I mean, I guess it's something that I think about now. I feel, and probably every generation of parents has this, you know, when you go to the store and you see uh, a new mom with her stroller and you're like, wow, look at the advances in strollers in the last 15 years, you know? And you just think times are changing and, and they are changing, right? When I had my first, there was no iPhone in sight and there wasn't really not, not social media the way it is today. And I think it can be really, really complicated, and especially today in the U.S., because you can go online and find so many different opinions about the same thing, and they could be completely diametrically opposite. And so I think if there's anything I would say as a final takeaway, I again, it's probably based on what I tell myself every day. Be smart about your decisions. Know what to believe. Don't get too down. Um, and just, I, I think be smart, you know, and, and I think, I think it's really hard to be critical. I think it's really easy. And I think we all do it today because of social media, it's really easy to kind of go down a rabbit hole of kind of numbing, you know, because there's so much out there that's so complicated and complex and confusing out there in our, in our political climate and climate change and everything that's going on. So I would say just be, be very smart and, and, and don't, and don't Don't numb yourself um, too much because our kids need us. And I think right now with everything going on, it's very easy for our society to forget about our kids.
0: Oh, beautiful. Yes. So, so important. Thank you. This was a lovely conversation. And I really appreciate the time that you took out of your busy day. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Jean-Marie.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.